you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS in Pasadena for a morning of multilingual readings, interactive performances, and lots of kid fun. It's Super Fun Saturday on June 1st. Get your tickets at LAS.com slash events. LAS Studios. Hi, everybody. This is Retake. I'm your host, John Horn. In this week's episode, just a few weeks before the Oscars, we're taking a deep dive into the Best Documentary Feature category. I talked to two of the nominees, director Sarah Dosa, who made Fire of Love. This is a film about scientific inquiry, and it's also about the human heart. And director Daniel Rohr, who's behind Navalny. There is nothing we can't do. There is no one we can't kill. There is no problem that can't be solved with murder. That's Vladimir Putin's worldview. But first, here's my weekly entertainment news chat with Elias 89.3 Morning Edition host, Suzanne Watley. Hey there, John. Hello, Suzanne. Good morning. So this morning, you want to talk about something that is not a new movie or a streaming series or anything like that. Instead, it's Wall Street. So what's the hook? Well, yesterday afternoon, the Walt Disney Company released its quarterly earnings in and of itself. That is not big news. But this earnings report was the first from new CEO Bob Iger, who, of course, is the old CEO. He left Disney as the head of the company in early 2020. Good timing regarding the pandemic. But last November, he returned after the board fired his successor, Bob Chapek, and Iger inherited a mess. Disney's streaming platforms were hemorrhaging money with $4 billion in losses in the last fiscal year. And the company's movie and TV businesses, especially at the multiplex, were not performing as they once were. So the good news for Wall Street is that Disney made more money than expected, thanks largely to its theme parks. They're crowded and ticket prices are skyrocketing, but people keep showing up. And the bad news? Well, Iger said, as you heard, as you said earlier, that he's going to uh, slash five and a half billion dollars in costs. And this, in part, is how he's going to do it. To help achieve this, we will be reducing our workforce by approximately 7,000 jobs. While this is necessary to address the challenges we're facing today, I do not make this decision lightly. So 7,000 employees is about 4% of Disney's global workforce. Uh, Iger did not specify where the cuts would come from, but Disney is folding a unit that Chapek started in his brief tenure called Disney Media and Entertainment Distribution. So it's safe to assume that many of the people who will be fired work locally and not at Disney's theme parks. The company had hinted earlier that layoffs might be coming, but the number represents one of the big, biggest job cuts in Disney's history outside of the pandemic. And it's not Disney alone that's shedding workers. A variety of media companies like Warner Brothers Discovery have been cutting jobs to save Money. Oh, yeah. And there's been a lot of bloodletting in the tech industry, too. Very so much so. Yeah, we didn't talk about Meta or any other pl- of those platforms. Uh, you mentioned, uh, John Horn, that the Walt Disney Company lost $4 billion in streaming in its last fiscal year. Any improvement just reported on that front? I, I guess it, 
depends on how you define improvement. I mean, Disney streaming platforms led by Disney Plus only lost $1.05 billion in the last quarter, which wasn't as bad as Wall Street was predicting. But wow, so far, in a little more than three years, Disney has lost close to $10 billion in streaming. And Disney Plus lost about 2.4 million subscribers in the last quarter. So it's very hard for somebody like me to see how Disney can quickly make streaming profitable, which they said will happen at the end end of next year because the only way to do it is some combination of adding subscribers which it didn't do raise prices which could drive more subscribers away or cut content costs which could lead to less attractive programming last december disney raised the monthly price for disney plus from eight dollars to eleven dollars if you do the math that's almost a 40 percent hike yep i i know that (laughs) i pay that bill um now i i recall it's i think it's been about four years ago or so when Disney acquired 21st Century Fox's entertainment assets. And in doing so, it got that studio's movies, including um, a little picture called Avatar, The Way of Water. Yeah, I have to assume that its theatrical performance as of late is quite a bright spot. It is very much so. That deal was four years ago next month. Uh, Avatar, The Way of Water is indeed, it is a global blockbuster for Disney uh, with worldwide theatrical ticket sales of nearly $2.2 billion so far. At the same time, though, I don't want to rain on Disney's parade, but recent box office returns for its animated movies have been catastrophic. Last year, Strange World grossed just $73 million worldwide, while Lightyear grossed a fraction of previous Pixar releases, less than a quarter of what Toy Story 4 took in. Oh, we uh, we learned that there's going to be a new toy... St- uh, to- I can never say that. Toy story try saying toy boat three times fast <laughs> toy boy, toy boy. <laughs> yeah you can't do it toy story a broadcaster there too. we go <laughs> well there's going to be a new toy story there's going to be a new frozen and there's going to be a new zootopia those are among the announcements uh, from yesterday too yeah i mean if the question is will those movies perform at the box office are they going to be sent to disney plus really quickly uh, we have talked many times about the collapse of theatrical business um and it's you know for Disney, it's Marvel movies, certainly it's Star Wars movies, haven't done as well as they have in the past. Um, You know, that is a good uh, business when it's working, and the theatrical business outside of hits like Top Gun, Avatar, uh, Jurassic World is not working very well. All right. Thanks so much, LAist 89.3's John Horn. Appreciate it. Thank you. Coming up, the Oscar-nominated documentary Fire of Love tells the story of two volcano scientists, their love for their work, dangerous though it may be, and for each other. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at Elias.com slash sweeps. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at LAS.com slash events. See you there.
Welcome back to Retake. I'm John Horn. Today, we're bringing you interviews with the filmmakers behind two of the five feature documentaries nominated for this year's Academy Awards. First up, Fire of Love. It's a documentary about two French volcano scientists, Katya and Maurice Kraft. They traveled the world for years, documenting volcanoes on film, and sadly died in a volcanic explosion in 1991. The footage they left behind, including from the days leading up to their deaths, makes up the film. The movie premiered at the Sundance Film Festival a year ago, but the festival was virtual, so I watched Fire of Love at home, next to my fireplace. It wasn't quite as toasty as being near hot lava, but it helped. Here's my conversation with Fire of Love director, Sarah Dosa. I often say love of fire as opposed to fire of love because I think both titles fit equally well, that this is a story about a couple that is in love and they're also in love with something and their their love is of volcanoes and it's almost like a marriage vow, including the till death do us part part. So is it natural that people can get the, the title wrong because both work? I love that. Um, yeah, that that's a wonderful interpretation of it. Um, I haven't heard that yet, but I'm going to start actually championing that because I, I do think that they can work each way. Um, yeah, Katya and Maurice were so drawn towards the fire due to their love. And so you can read it backwards and forwards. I'm going to play a little bit from the very beginning of the film. So it's not really a spoiler because this is uh, (laughs) something you share at the start of the movie. So let's listen to this first clip. This is Katya. And this is Maurice. It's 1991, June 2nd. Tomorrow will be their last day. They will leave behind samples. Words. Hundreds of hours of footage. Thousands of photos. And a million questions. So first thing, who is speaking and why did you cast her? Oh, so that is the phenomenal Miranda July, whose voice you heard. Um, Miranda is a multi-hyphenate artist, for for those of you who aren't familiar with her work. She's a phenomenal filmmaker, writer, actor, performance artist, curator, the the list goes on. But I've been in love with Miranda's work since I first met it uh, about 15 years ago when I first saw Me, You, and Everyone We Know, um, a film that came out in 2005. Um, I really believe Miranda's work um, shows kind of the the precarity and strangeness and beauty of what it means to be human and specifically to also be in relationship with each other, whether it's just for a moment or for it's for our entire lives. Um, so much of her work also plays with kind of themes of existentialism and the absurd. Um, uh, these are all themes that we really wanted to play with in Fire of Love as well. Um, and so we thought that she could be just an excellent uh, narrator for our film. Um, and she did. She, she beautifully, um, her performance with the narration, um, she was able to communicate such strength and vulnerability all at once. Um, she also was able to have warmth in her voice while meaning a, a sense of like distance 
which for us was really important because that allowed that kind of spaciousness perhaps allowed for audiences to kind of have their own experiences. At least that, that's our greatest intention for audiences to dwell in Maurice and Katya's footage, to hear their voices and to be guided by Miranda's voice when they needed to, but hopefully for it to not be too distracting of a texture. Um, and yeah, Miranda was able to, to do that dance beautifully. Um, working with her was like one of the greatest gifts of my creative life. <laughs> you have in that narration a couple of things. I want to start with the last thing, that they leave behind a million questions. Yeah. Do you think you answered 12 of them, 100 of them? How many yeah. questions did you, <laughs> did you think you answered? And why is it important to put that out there that there is a mystery to them or there are things that are unknown that you can only guess at? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question. Um, that's something that was like incredibly important to us actually as we we're making the film. Um, you know, th this is a film about uh, scientific inquiry and it's also about the human heart. Inquiry and falling in love are um, met with such, yeah, are driven by mystery um, and the unknown. Um, for us as a filmmaking team, we almost kind of embraced like a geological kind of methodology as we were editing the film. Uh, first, I should just say, I worked with two brilliant editors, Aaron Casper and Jocelyn Chapu, and we watched all the footage and we're met with all of these different pieces. There was a lot that um, taught us um, many things, answered some questions that we had, but we kept seeing imagery that didn't quite make sense to us. And no matter how much research we did, no matter how many friends we spoke to who knew Katia and Maurice, um, uh, we still had these questions um, and that felt so appropriate that there were these unknowns in our own excavation, so to speak, just as Katya and Maurice, you know, um, uh, met the unknowns that were volcanoes. Um, they both said in, in the film and, and many times in their own work that um, volcanoes are beyond human understanding. Um, and yet they still went towards this, um, this inquiry. They still went towards this pursuit of um, understanding and for us, on a much smaller scale, that's what it felt like. We There was so much we desired to know, so many questions that we had, but there was an unrequitedness to our own search. And one could say unrequitedness kind of is at the heart of romance. <laughs> and so it was fitting in a sense that we would have that feeling for um, in the making of a love story. There is a documentary that came out in 2018 called Amazing Grace. It's about Aretha Franklin's concert in 1972, and the footage was shot by Sidney Pollack and a crew. They failed to slate the cameras, so they could not sync the sound to picture, and it took, it took from 1972 to 2018 to get everything put together. You had almost the opposite, or the exact opposite problem. You have all this footage and there's no sound, correct? So how do you start marrying sound to picture because you have to create the soundscape that fits their images? Yeah, um, that's a great question. Yeah, the 16 millimeter footage that they shot arrived to us without anything sound. Um, we very quickly realized in the edit room how important it was though to edit with sound. We actually did a few tests where we tried to play with just text on screen to see if it could work. For example, um, Jocelyn and Aaron would write like car honk here or wind sweeps in here just with text on screen and, and it just didn't, it didn't work. Um, sound, yeah, plays such a powerfully narrative role, especially when dealing with subject matter that's so unpredictable. For example, when you're looking at something that seems still off on screen and then all of a sudden, you know, you hear a boom and realize like, oh, wow, there's something happening off screen. You don't know where it is. It's so disorienting and so important for telling a story like this. Um, and also just like immersing the audience in this visceral, powerful, sentient world of volcanoes that 
for Katya and Maurice were, um, you know, uh, so alive. It, it was essential for the character of volcanoes to be met with this very textured sound world. Um, Aaron and Jocelyn went through painstaking research to find um, volcano sounds from other sound libraries, um, uh, wind sounds, all kinds of landscape sounds, as well as the sounds of Katya and Maurice's car. You know, they, they really did precise research to make sure everything was quite accurate um, and built in those uh, that sound into the first stages of the edit. We then worked with a fabulous uh, post-production sound team in Montreal, um, a sound designer named Patrice LeBlanc and a re-recording mixer named Gavin Fernandez, who just kind of took the initial work that Aaron and Jocelyn did, and they made it multidimensional um, and multidirectional. Um, Patrice, for example, worked with Foley artists who were able to like really get at some of the particularities of like the squishing of the volcanic mud or the whoosh of the air. And, um, well, how about, how about the fried egg? Uh, Maurice fries an <laughs> egg on hot lava. So that luckily did come to us with sound. Okay, that was part good. Of the, yeah, <laughs> that would have been hard to read. Yeah, anything with them actually talking on camera, luckily, was part of the archival footage that um, was on television shows. Uh, was not their own. So with that one, we, we didn't have to recreate. I want to play another clip, and then I'm a, it's a brief clip, but then I want to ask, some, ask you some questions about what we're going to hear. Volcanology is a science of observation. The closer they get, the more they see the closer they get. And Maurice says something that I think is really interesting. He said, I prefer an intense and short life to a monotonous long one. And part of what I think he is saying is something that's really broader than what their work is. And that is that it's important to them to have a meaningful life, even if that means they're going to have a meaningful death. Exactly. Yeah, I, I think that's beautifully put. Um, I, I think for them, there was actually a, um, a quote we had written down in the edit room, which was a guiding kind of light for us, which was that um, better to, to die up close than live at a distance. Um, and we, we really felt that uh, Katya and Maurice were guided by this intimacy with, with volcanoes. Um, they, they knew that um, yeah, what, what they saw was not just in the moment for their own personal gratification, because it truly was thrilling and, and um, it was for them an expression of love getting that close, um, but also they were getting that close with cameras. They were able to commit this fleeting phenomenon um, to posterity through their image. It was a thing of beauty and art making, um, but it was also scientific data in the sense that it contributed volumes to the burgeoning fields of volcanology and geoscience. Last question. You probably learned a fair amount about volcanoes in making this film. What did you learn about relationships and love in making this film? Oh, wow. I could talk for a long time about that. Um, I think one of the things that I learned most is that um, pursuing love is the key to living a meaningful life. Even when it seems inexplicable, even when it seems just baffling, um, trying to understand kind of the power of love and the workings of love um, so deeply enriches life. And that's something that um, Katya and Marisa have really taught me. Sounds like the Huey Lewis song, The Power of Love. Sarah Dosa oh. is the director and producer of Fire of Love or Love of Fire, if you're like me, <laughs> and mix up the title in a fittingly way. Thanks so much for taking time to chat with us. I really love the film and loved our conversation. Oh, thank you so much, John. This is, yeah, such an enjoyable conversation. I, I really appreciate it. 
That was Sarah Dosa, the director of the documentary Fire of Love. It's streaming on Hulu and Disney Plus and in limited theaters now. Coming up, another Oscar-nominated documentary, Navalny, is a fascinating look at the Russian government's attempts to silence the Russian lawyer and anti-corruption activist Alexei Navalny. Alleyest has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com slash events. How to LA is our love letter to Los Angeles. We'll tell you where to get a yummy torta, a bowl of kanji, and of course, a burger. It's a beef sausage blend, fried egg, grilled onions, and then raspberry jam. What hiking trails to check out. This feels like we're out in the mountains. And where to take in some culture. Lamert Park, they've been fostering jazz for decades. LA's a big place with a lot going on. So we got you. Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. Now to another feature documentary nominated this year for an Oscar, Navalny. Its subject is Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. Today, he's being held in a Russian maximum security prison one year into a nine-year sentence, ostensibly for committing fraud. The film traces his rise to fame and the investigation into his poisoning in 2020 with a Soviet-era nerve agent. Independent experts appointed by the UN Human Rights Council say the Russian government was responsible. Journalists in the documentary, along with Navalny himself, go to extraordinary lengths to track down exactly how the assassination attempt was carried out and who did it. Spoiler, they find out it's an amazing scene. Here's my conversation with director Daniel Rohr. You'll hear the quality of the Zoom interview wasn't the best. My first question is, there is a definition of truth or I guess you'd say alternative facts that Russia seems to embrace. So I'm going to play a clip from early in the movie after Navalny has been poisoned. We're going to hear a English translation of a Russian doctor's diagnosis of what happened. We've come to the conclusion that, judging by the fact there were no poisons found in his blood or other biological materials, he has a metabolic disorder, lowering of blood sugar levels to be specific, We're hearing state news agencies here that are backed by the Kremlin, suggesting that hallucinogenic drugs may be involved, but not poisoning. I want to ask you broadly about that idea about truth and disinformation versus misinformation and how this plays into your documentary. It's an excellent question, and it's one that was extraordinarily fascinating for me to dive into as we were making this film. Um, When it comes to anything from the Russian government, any information in the messaging, There is no truth. They are liars. They lie. They lie about their lies. They lie so much that they leave the public bewildered, not knowing what to believe. It's an extraordinary propaganda machine that is predicated on state lying. There's no other way to put it. Um, And it's sort of spectacular when you see it unfolding in front of you. 
um, as it as it as we sort of try and and articulate in the film. But this is one of the pillars of any authoritarian regime: misinforming the public, misleading the public, giving the public so many scattered pieces of information they don't know what to believe. They tilt towards apathy. You know, this sense of oh, we'll never know the truth. We'll never know what really happened. That's why the Russian government just throws theories upon theory at the world to try and um, throw the truth off balance in a way. That's what they're trying to do. And they're also detaining anybody who says otherwise. It could be somebody who is protesting outside the Kremlin, or it can be somebody like Navalny who is saying, I have an alternative idea of what Russia should be. So rather than engage with that person, they're going to lock them up or silence. They're going to silence all their critics. Well, any any dictator, any leader of an authoritarian regime understands the value of controlling the message, controlling history, of controlling facts. And anyone who sheds light into dark places, anyone who speaks truth to power, who tries to articulate and publish reality is an enemy of the state. And that's exactly the dichotomy that exists in Russia today. If you're an independent journalist, you're a foreign agent. If you are an anti-corruption fighter, you're a terrorist. I want to play another clip. And this really gets at the idea that Putin, I believe, and probably he believes, is beyond is beyond touch. He, he can do whatever he wants without paying any consequences. This is uh, Alexei Navalny talking about how problematic it would be for Putin and Russia to target him. It's impossible to believe it. It's kind of stupid. The, the whole idea of poisoning with a chemical weapon, what the fuck? This is why this is so smart. Because even reasonable people, they refuse to believe like, what? Come on, poisoned? Seriously? I think it's actually the opposite. It wasn't problematic. It was an opportunity that by silencing Navalny, they were basically saying, we can do whatever we want and we'll get away with it. How would you interpret what Alexei said there? Well, Alexei's calculus was off. His threat assessment was wrong. He had this understanding, as the clip articulates, that because he's so high profile, because he has millions of Twitter followers, they wouldn't dare murder him. Not only did they try and murder him, but they tried to murder him with Novichok, which is a Soviet-era nerve agent that comes straight from the KGB, which is, as one subject of the film says, Putin's signature weapon. So not only did they try and kill him, but they tried to kill him with such a method that would be like a wink to the whole world. They would say, we, uh, th th there is nothing we can't do. There is no one we can't kill. There is no problem that can't be solved with murder. That's Vladimir Putin's worldview. Alexei Navalny's story is emblematic of that. And this, the war crimes he's committing in Ukraine are also, it, it's the same worldview. It's the same, it's the same evil, vile perspective um, that, that led to this war in Ukraine, that led to trying to murder his political oppositions and stunt democracy and freedom of expression and freedom of the press in his country. I want to ask you about another person who's very key to this story, and that is a Bulgarian journalist, uh, Christo Grozev. Am I saying that right? Yeah, Christo Grozev. Christo Grozev. Tell me about how you met him and how that led you to make the movie you made. Well, Christo and I were introduced by my producer, one of the producers of the film, uh, Odessa Ray. The film has four extraordinary producers, Shane, Boris, Melanie Miller, Diane Becker, and Odessa Ray. 
But Odessa and I were on the ground in Vienna when we met Christo and we sort of struck up a working friendship, working on a totally different project. And that project wasn't going well. We 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 were in Vienna. I, I didn't exactly know what I would be doing next. And that's when Christo said, what about Navalny? I think I have a lead into who tried to poison him. And that was obviously an extraordinary statement to hear. And I said, Christo, who's making that movie? And he said, I don't know. Should I ask? And I said, yeah, Christo, you should ask right now. And a week later, we were driving across Germany uh, to meet with Alexei and uh, his chief investigator, Maria Pevchik. Now, I will say your previous movie was a film about Robbie Robertson and the band. Now, there might be some vague connections that I haven't made between Alexei Navalny and Robbie Robertson, both kind of larger-than-life characters. Um, what was your pitch to Alexei, given that your last film was not about the former Soviet Union or about European geopolitics? What was your pitch? Well, my pitch was, was simple. I said, what's happening right now is historic. It's urgent. And history will be the benefactor if we just start filming. I didn't know if we'd end up making a documentary. I didn't know if we'd end up liking working with one another. It's a very unique relationship, subject, filmmaker. But my pitch to him was, let's just start shooting. We'll work on, out a deal later. We'll work on release forms later. Let's just start filming. And that's what we did. And I think it was that incremental approach that gave Alexei and his, his staff and his family the trust in me um, to continue, to keep filming. Um, and I don't think any of us could have imagined what extraordinary events would have unfolded in front of our cameras. Let's talk about how they get there. Um, there is a way of reporting uh, that Christo engages in that is fascinating to a lot of journalists and I suspect a lot of people who watch this movie. I want to play a clip of Christo talking about how he data mines and how that led him to find out who the people were who tried to kill Navalny. Every time you use your email, you make a phone call, make a doctor's appointment, take a plane or a train, anytime you use the ATM, every time you actually look at the screen of your phone, that leaves a trace. In a place like Russia, Imagine the person who works at a travel agency that has access to the flight manifest. They're getting, what, 25 bucks a day as a salary? And then for another 25, they would be able to sell that flight manifest to anybody who asks for it, just because they'll double their income for the day. I mean, it's amazing what data he gets, and it's kind of ironic that, that the people selling this information from a former communist country are capitalizing on capitalism. But how does that lead to what is discovered. How is that way of reporting help uh, Navalny figure out who actually killed him? Well, first and foremost, it's important to, to be mindful that Christo is essentially using Russian, Russia's rampant corruption against itself. Right. Imagine living in a society where someone can call the phone company and pay someone to sell you their, your phone records or someone's phone records, your wife's phone records, your whoever's phone records. It's extraordinary. Um, what Christo pieces together is a detailed map of the movements of the men who tried to poison Navalny. Once he is able to discern where the poisons manufacture, he's able to tell who works at the poison manufacturing plant. As he says in the film, there's this institute in Moscow. Their cover story is that they manufacture sports drinks adjacent to Gatorade. 
and it's at the the sports nutrition manufacturing facility where 12 men work whose only previous experience is working in chemical weapons. Christo is able to get the phone records of the men who work at this institute. He's then able to see who they've been calling on the days before and after Navalny's poisoning, which unusual numbers pop up. He then buys those phone numbers. And through certain algorithms and applications, he's able to, to place identities to phone numbers. And this hornet's nest, this, this plot of murderers, is able to come into focus. I'm not going to say what happens because while some reviewers and people writing about this film have given it all away, I just want to say it is worth watching without knowing what's going to happen, which I think is what happened to you because you probably are not fluent in Russian. I'm just guessing that. This scene unfolds in front of you. At what point do you realize something profound is happening? Are you able to read it in the faces of Navalny? And Grosev, how are you interpreting in real time what is happening, which is basically the centerpiece of the film? Yeah, you're, of course, speaking to what, what many people consider to, to be the marquee scene of the film, this jaw-dropping moment about 50 minutes into the movie. Um, we were filming. We woke up that morning. We had no expectations that we would film anything meaningful. We just have to, we just have to shoot because that's what we do. And what unfolded in front of the camera was so extraordinarily jaw-dropping you didn't have to speak a word of russian to understand that something amazing was transpiring the expression on the on the faces of my subjects who are normally quite reserved and stern seeing their faces their 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 jaws unhinged and hit the floor i understood that what we were filming was extraordinary my last question is this. I started by asking you about truth and access to facts, uh, especially within Russia. Not a lot of filmmakers would root for their movie to be pirated, but I suspect that maybe some people associated with your film would be happy to have it stolen and shared throughout Russia. By whatever means it gets into the country, how important would it be that Russian citizens see this film because the version of the world that they are typically presented with bears no relation to reality. Well, I could never advocate for people stealing my film. I would never I suggest can. that or say that, but you certainly can. But what I will say is that ensuring that the Russian people can see this film and get to know Alexei is a paramount uh, part of this mission. It is our number one prerogative right now through any means necessary. And so, again, I would never advocate for people stealing the film, but I also know that the Russian people are very resourceful. They're very good at torrenting. They're very good at using VPNs. So I think that this film being widely available in Russia is an inevitability. Um, and I think that's a very good thing. Daniel, thanks so much for your time. It's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you. That was Navalny director Daniel Rohr. The film is on HBO Max now. And if you missed our interview a couple months back with Laura Poitras, another of this year's Oscar-nominated documentary filmmakers, her film about the opioid crisis is called All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. You can find that interview in your Retake podcast feed. 
Thanks for listening to Retake. I'm John Horn. We'll see you again next week. And in the meantime, if you're interested, sign up for our weekly email newsletter. Retake is produced and engineered by Michael Cosentino and Monica Bushman. The editor is Suzanne Levy. And a special thanks to the entire KPCC LAS Newsroom. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. All seven states on the Colorado River may have to cut back water, but not everyone agrees on how. From Coloradans who blame others for the crisis. There continues to be a look upstream to solve a problem that we did not create. To farmers who may lose their livelihoods. We don't want to cut equal with everybody else. Will they reach a deal in time? Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.